welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Gene Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills. We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. My daddy came and here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jerry Springer. Thank you. My golf shirt is being cleaned. That's why I'm wearing a T-shirt. You're one, you have one golf shirt? You have more money but than God? But it's a very nice one. <laughs> one golf if shirt. If you want more money than God, only buy one, one golf, golf shirt. You learn to save from a millionaire. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. Hey, we're going to go back to your youth, my youth, and maybe even to Me- Megan's youth, because everybody knows who Peter, Paul, and Mary who oh, they yeah, for are sure. and were and are. And uh, we're very fortunate tonight at in about 15 minutes – Paul Stuckey, Noel Paul Stuckey, who is the Paul of Peter, Paul, and Mary, is going to join us in an interview via yes. the phone, and we're going to chat about some of the work that they did back in the day, as well as some work they're doing today with an organization that he does with his daughter, Paul does with Liz Sunday, his daughter, and they created a foundation called Music to Life, M-U-S-I-C, the numeral two, and then life.org. That's yeah. their website. That's really cool, yeah. I encourage people to go to it because in a nutshell, this is what they're doing. They are finding artists from all genres, even though folk music was largely where message tunes were happening in the 50s with yeah. the Weavers and Pete Seeger, and then in Odetta and a whole bunch of people, and then through the 60s with Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Limelighters, Bob Dylan, John Denver came along in the 60s and the 70s. He was part of a group called uh, the Mitchell Trio. And all of these groups happened, and uh, so many of them were mixing into their music message songs, sure. protest songs, songs with a soul. Because in a message, yeah. To quote uh, Bob Dylan and then Peter, Paul, and Mary did their song. Times are changing. They were changing right then into the 60s. Prior to the 60s, folk music had been pretty much a, a genre of music, and there was some part of the population, not necessarily a very large part, but a part of the population that really loved folk music as entertainment. And the attraction of folk music is what the word says. Folk, it was the music of the people, and it was describing their lives, and that was the attachment to it. But all of a sudden, when the 60s came, Politics, in a sense, was no longer just the subject you studied in school. Politics, all of a sudden, became our lives. Became our lives because we had television and suddenly the civil rights movement was in everyone's home. It was in everyone's living room every evening. So you couldn't say, well, civil rights, that's just a problem down in the South. Civil rights, we saw it every day. And so that all of a sudden got people to become engaged in that. And then, of course, the anti-war movement with Vietnam. That became not just a matter of interest, it became our lives because we had the draft and everybody, everyone was involved in that war. Either someone in your family was going to Vietnam or your next door neighbor was going to Vietnam. 58,000 Americans would be killed, hundreds of thousands uh, injured. And, uh, you know, what it did to our country So it almost was like the perfect storm, not a very pleasant storm in some sense, obviously, but it was the storm of all of a sudden, because of the media and what was happening in our world, 
folk music had something to really talk about that everyone could relate to. And the beauty of, and we're going to be talking uh, with, with Paul um, in a few moments, but the beauty of that group, they are iconic, Peter, Paul, and Mary. And it's not just, oh, these old people talking about Peter, Paul, and Mary. The truth of the matter is they are iconic because they were singularly the group that brought folk music and protest music into the mainstream. Okay, Bob Dylan was the poet in a sense, but it still was a relatively small group in terms of the whole nation. But Peter, Paul, and Mary, you could sit there and listen to them with mom and dad and your grandparents. It wasn't generational. They brought it into mainstream entertainment because of their great talent, and they brought the message there as well. And then I think that is how the 1960s, when you look at the, the background music of the 60s, you can't have it without Peter, Paul, and Mary. And they started in 1961, and the uh, first place they played, or among the first places they played, was the Bitter End in, the Greenwich, in Greenwich yeah. Village in New York City. And by the way, they took songs like If I Had a Hammer, written by Pete Seeger. He, was, he and Fred Hellerman and the Weavers were blackballed by, by uh, the House of Un-American Activities. Yeah. They were investigated. They were kicked off TV for many years. They c- couldn't get on a show called Hootenanny, which in the 1960s was like uh, uh, in this surge of modernization of folk music where all these artists were playing on national TV in prime time, he couldn't get on. Peter, Paul, and Mary took that song. They took Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. They then did that song on, in what, 1960? What year was it, Jerry? When Martin Luther King gave the 63. speech. 63. 63 on the Washington Mall, uh, the I Have a Dream speech. So they were, as you say, iconic and even then, but they would mix in that music with songs like Puff the Magic Dragon. Right. And what people said well, is, no, it wasn't about weed. It was just about a, it was a fairy a tale boy thing. Boy and his dragon. Boy and his dragon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but and, and you remember them. You're a totally different generation than Jerry and me. But yeah. yet you knew of them. But they were so, like, they, they were prolific. And they were, they were woven into kind of culture. So they were used in movie soundtracks. And they were used in things that, that my generation and yeah. younger than me, they, they, it just kept living on. So that I think the message may have been a little bit lost as it got older and older. But as we come back today and look at it, yeah, it's extremely relevant. And that's one of the things we want to talk to uh, uh, Paul about uh, is the fact that what are we, what's happening today? Yeah. And what, what role can the music play today? Because I I really think, and and I'm going to ask him about it, but you know, my theory is you can't have a movement unless you have the music. I'd be interested to see what he thinks yeah. about like the artists of today, and if he's if they feel yeah. that there there are artists coming up that have Check the same. Check this out. Yeah. Their yeah. Music to Life Foundation is in search of, and Peter and Paul still perform. Mm-hmm. Mary sadly she, died yeah, in two thousand and nine of leukemia after a five year battle, but but they still go out and perform around the country, and they're yeah. going to be at the Rubicon in Ventura, California. Mm-hmm. And they're doing some work for Music to Life, which is Paul and his daughter, Liz Sunday's foundation, as I mentioned. And that foundation is finding artists from various genres, hip-hop, rock and roll. That's awesome. uh, Folk, who are today's writers and Mm -hmm. performers. 
And they are in search of those people. And again, I urge people to go to musictolife.org and sort of learn about their foundation and uh, submit songs if you think you're part of this. They're looking for people who are doing cause music, music with a message of today. But they're also looking, Liz Sunday told me this the other day, they're searching for artists who not only write these songs, but then are willing to take the songs that they've written and move it into action perform the song somewhere and try to get people to get involved in the anti-poverty movement or the innocence projects in prisons and I things love, of that yeah, sort. They of want it to be not just some words on a piece of paper, but also have those words become action. That's pretty cool. It's very cool. That's great. And, and you cannot have, you know, I, I wasn't being flippant when I said you can't have a movement without music, but, you know, very... The, the function that music has in, in a movement is the fact that it lets you know that you're not alone. There's a sense of belonging. It's why people march. They march because, oh my gosh, there are a whole lot of people with me on this. You know, it, it's, an, it's empowering. And uh, it, it's, it's why you have a, a big mass rallies. You want to go where there are a lot of people there because they're confirming your views and you don't feel afraid sitting at home alone. Am I the only one that believes this? It's why every religion has music. Why do you think when you go to church on Sunday, you're singing the hymns? The music gives us a sense of community. And when there is a major issue in society, like equal justice and stuff like that, the music binds us together to, for the cause. So it has a function. It's not just, gee, those words were cute. And yeah, that's a position I agree with. It, you know, how, how many civil rights movement, uh, marches have you ever gone in where they're not singing, um, we shall overcome? Right. Exactly. Right away, you know, as I said, you don't get turned on by a position paper. No one says, hey, Saturday morning at 10 a.m. on Fountain Square, be there, we're going to read a position paper. <laughs> you know? No. The music is the, the emotional attachment to something of moral worth. And we saw that when we had the Freedom Riders on, like, mm. year, like well, two years right. ago now, like, you felt yeah. that. It was that same community. It brings you together. It's, yeah, absolutely. And, and we're going to ask Paul about some of his uh, more modern work. Mm. He's written a couple yeah. songs, and we're going to put them on our website. They'll be up there as of tomorrow. One's called Impeachable. They're both about Trump. One's called Impeachable, and the other, David, <laughs> what is it called? Is it Getting Involved or? Working Together. Working Together. Working. Thank you. And, and, the, and I've heard both of them, uh, and you can hear them now on YouTube, and they're, they're wonderful. Uh, Impeachable is a parody song to the tune, the old standard, Unforgettable. And he rewrote it, and it's <laughs> all about Impeachable. And then he has a song called Working Together, because the attitude mm -hmm. when a new president happens, and that, we Democrats, we happen to all be liberals and Democrats, is they say, well, look, you know, give Trump a chance and uh, work together with this guy. And so Paul Stuckey wrote a song that goes, starts off, um, we've got a little bit later, maybe to end the interview, we're going to play a little bit of it. And he says, uh, yeah, that's a nice sentiment, working together. We all should do that as good Americans. But let me just give you a short list of things I'm not going to work together on. And then he rolls yeah. them it's out. It's going to be a longer list. Like, you know, dismantling health care. No, I'm not going to work together on that. not going to be... <laughs> Building a wall around America? No, I don't want to work yeah. together on that. You, you know, suppressing the vote? No, I don't want to work together on that. So that's pretty cool stuff. Uh, before Paul calls, Jerry, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, 
you're a, uh, you grew up as a kid in New York City, Queens, New York. Oh, it was a tough neighborhood. I know. <laughs> subway, subway ride away God. from Manhattan and, yeah. I don't know, maybe two or three subway rides and you're sitting in Greenwich Village. Yes. The hippest community then and yeah. today. Yeah, it was cool. Maybe in the world. Yeah. And Peter, Paul, and Mary started in 1961 at the Bitter End. Yeah. They were wonderful little smoky club. Yeah, John Baez was there, Dylan. Yeah, that was Did you ever go as a kid, high school or college, even coming home on breaks, to Greenwich Village? Yeah. And what was it like High school, my mother wouldn't let me on the subways in high school. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, you might get hurt. Jeff wouldn't be able to find his way back home. It's also very true. (laughs) And uh, no, but when I was in college and come home, you know, on breaks, vacations, whatever. Yeah, oh, absolutely, we went to the village. I mean, that was the place to be. And uh, it was great. The scene back then. Do you recall any any images of the village in nineteen sixties? It was, you know, what later happened in Haight Ashbury on you know on the West Coast. Uh, This was back well in the fifties. We were called beatniks, and it went from beatniks to ultimately hippies or whatever. But it was a new generation. Understand, nineteen sixty one. We had just elected a president who looked as young as we did, and this coming after Eisenhower, who, who was a beloved figure, but he clearly was, he was grandpa. And then all of a sudden, we had John Kennedy, and we would, you know, the optimism was unbelievable. We would put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. We would create the Peace Corps. There was nothing we couldn't accomplish, so we believed. It was a great start to a decade. It crumbled, as you know, in the mid and later 60s. But boy, it started out with such hope, such optimism. There really was a sense of community. And in the beginning, it was all positive because there never was an issue that one side was obviously 100% right and the other side was 100% wrong, and that, of course, was civil rights. There was no moral defense of the segregation and discrimination and the stuff that was going on. And so young people, you know, who like purity in their causes, because obviously when you're young, you don't see all the subtleties, perhaps. You you don't have the maturity yet. But when you're young and you're all of a sudden staying out late at night and breaking away a little bit from mom and dad and not only getting your own music, but getting your own political ideas and philosophies and what the world's going to be, by gosh, civil rights, you could go home and tell mom and dad, well, how can you possibly justify discrimination? How, how can you possibly say that uh, back then it was Negroes and whites, that a Negro child can't go to s- school with a white child? What, what's that about? And it was just, and that gave us a lot of confidence and a lot of, wow, there is a sense of justice. It was not for the poor people that had to go through it. Excuse me, it, guys. Uh, is he on? Paul's on the line if you guys want to... Is it a collect, is it collect call? <laughs> do they even still... Ha- is that still a thing? You I don't even what? think you can still Look, do that. I'm paying for it. There you go. I hate you. Paul, I've never met you, but I love you. No, oh, you're sweetheart. Yeah, you... Uh, honestly, you uh, you guys are, are the... Certainly the music of, of my years. Um, and just... Uh, uh, you've heard it a million times, so I don't want to be silly. Uh, but your, your name is Noel, which I'll be honest, I didn't know, but it never would have worked, Peter, Noel, and Mary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, 
Well, I, I did in my fantasy wonder if maybe neither Noel and Nary. <laughs> Good for you. Nice. Okay, and I've seen you as so many of us sitting here and around the world have seen you tons of times. I mean, growing up, I've probably been to 20 of your concerts. And uh, But anyway, thank you for joining us. And Yeah, you bet. Good to be part of this. And I'll start off, and then we'll get to what you're doing today. But the notion that we were talking a little bit before you got on the phone is it really was the perfect storm. Uh, in the early mm. 1960s, your music coming along with all of a sudden a generation who, as I just said, had just elected a president who looked as young as we did. We were going to put a man mm. on the moon, the civil rights movement. This was before Vietnam. But just the positive notion of equal justice, and you mainstreamed it. You obviously weren't the first people to come along with folk music and a wonderful message, but you took that message, sometimes your own songs and sometimes even others, but you took, let's say, the words of Dylan and you brought it to mainstream America so we could sit at home and you could have grandparents, parents, and kids listening and getting the same message. It's irreplaceable what you did then. And, yeah, it is an incredible, perfect storm, as you said, Jerry. It's uh, As I look back on it, I realize that I was the right guy with the right group at the right time. And the fact that we had inherited so much of this material from Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and that the time had come for America to recognize that radio was an instrument where we could speak to each other and we could talk about not only dating each other, you know, which was the boop, boop, doop, boop, yeah. doop, boop, yeah. doop kind of song, but we could also talk about those things that were relevant to the concerns of America at the time, which were everything from how many roads must a man walk down before they can call him a man to, you know, we shall overcome. And it was a remarkable time to be alive and to be contributing. And we could feel it not only in our concerts, but we could also feel it in terms of what the record response on the radio response was. Were you political before you started recording? Or, or were, uh, I, I, personally, I personally was not. I was a young kid from the Midwest, a rock and roller who had a rhythm and blues group that had won a contest. Uh, who borrowed a lot of black music, uh, who understood the emotional quality of it, but really was unaware that there was a whole conception of equity that was still lacking in music. And it was through the virtue of folk music that I encountered in Greenwich Village in 1960, well, 1960 through 1962, that I discovered, oh my gosh, Here's an opportunity to balance the scale. Here's a, a chance to talk about those things which still need to be addressed in America. And I became, I mean, it changed my ethics. It uh, taught me so much about that which is valuable in life. Was there a time that you remember where the three of you are sitting down and deciding, you know, what songs you'll do or what songs you'll write or whatever? And was there ever like... It, an argument among the three of you, uh, we can't do that. 
it's a little too early for that, or that's too too over the edge. <laughs> no, no, no. We constantly argued, but it was yeah. never about being the leading edge of an advocate. Oh, that's a great answer. Good uh, for you. Uh, I mean, for for instance, you know, when we sang about El Salvador yes. in the '80s, I mean, there was never a question that we would do that song. Uh, no, if anything, the arguments were: Does this say it completely? Uh, is this the best way to say what it is we want to say from our heart? Who called you on, uh, it's uh, 1963, and you're you obviously, in that iconic moment, uh, perform at the, uh, you know, on the mall for uh, the Civil mm. Rights March, the March on Washington, Martin Luther King. Mm. Do, mm. How did it come to be that you were up there and you cannot see a video of that moment uh, and not see you guys there, which is, is it's just great. I mean, but anyway, do you remember, walk yeah, us well, through that. How did, sure, how did of course, you're, 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 living, you're living in the moment, Jerry. Sure. You know, and you're, you're a tree and here's an entire forest of believers. And the, I was so, as a matter of fact, so overwhelmed by the moment, it did not occur to me until about 20 years later, no kidding, that we had done the entire March on Washington twice. Because if you've ever seen the iconic picture of Peter and Mary and I standing in front of the uh, Washington Monument, right, right. You'd, recognize, you'd recognize that that must have been a rehearsal. Because we walked from there to the Lincoln Memorial, where we sang and Dr. King delivered his I Have a Dream speech, they were two separate circumstances, and I, I didn't even remember that until 20 years ago. That's how overwhelmed I was by the circumstance. However, I gotta, you know, I gotta say that Mary had her wits about her because she's standing there with Peter. She's looking out over the crowd of 250,000 people just before uh, King is about to deliver his speech, and she says to Peter. Peter, we are witnessing history. Now, I don't know how she managed to step outside of herself to say that, but she was absolutely right on spot. Boy, that, re that really is perceptive, because if you, you're right. As you, just as you were saying that, it dawned on me. Now, when we look back and watch the video, oh, that was the speech where he, his I Have a Dream speech. But, of course, before he started speaking, you didn't know that this was going to be like the greatest speech of all time. So you're sitting there, there's a huge rally, this could have been Woodstock, you know what I mean? You know, it's, it's great, you, you don't yet know the sense of history, other than obviously a lot of people come together and marching. But was there a moment during the speech, or maybe when it was just over and he gave those final lines, was there a moment when you said, oh my God. God, I mean, did you well up? Did you, you know, did your throat tighten? When yeah, really yeah, you got to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got to you got to know that when the first rehearsal happened, that's when he spoke. And we by the time we marched together to the Lincoln Memorial from the from the previous spot where we had warmed up and everybody had gone through their song, we knew exactly what it is we were marching to the Lincoln Memorial for good. So yeah. there was a, there was a connection of the heart that was palpable. Yeah. Oh man, just to be inside your skin for 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 these. I mean, you know, we all talk about these moments. You you lived it. That, that's 
That's phenomenal. Yeah, well, and and the moments don't die, you know. I mean, then we moved on, as I said, to El Salvador. You know, I mean, we certainly moved on to the uh, protest against the war in Vietnam in the late 60s. But the fact is, this music still lives, and now we live, you know, in a time that is very challenging. I mean, much of what the liberal progressive movement stood for uh, is being challenged by an administration that is looking askance at global warming. You know, they're not believing it, you know, so the environment is under challenge. They're looking at challenging minimum wage. They're looking at challenging health care. I mean, so once again, from uh, from the artists are coming music that address these concerns and express the... Uh, Express the concern of a, a large number of Americans. Well, you know, I mean, we're talking about a popular vote that was well in excess of what uh, the current administration received. Yeah. Tell us what you're doing. This is a wonderful transition into what you are doing now. What your, you know, the microphone is yours. Tell us what you want. Tell, tell us what you want, because we're, we're ready to sign up. I got my pen. Uh, well, I know that there are a lot of people that are anxious about the times in which we live. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a song now uh, called uh, Work Together, which is available on you know YouTube and uh, Facebook, which basically says, you know, I will not work together to uh, lower the minimum wage, you know. I will, not, I will not work together to normalize the racist or tolerate the hatred that they profess, you know. There are issues which most of us, uh, even Republicans and Democrats alike, will not uh, allow the present administration to push through. So where is that being expressed musically? Well, not only by me, but by a vast group of young artists who are now being supported by an organization called Music to Life. Music, Music to Life is doing an event in Ventura, California in early May, uh, which will present winners of a activist artist songwriting contest. Um, and also introduce the public to the concept that music and social concern did not die out in the 60s. And As give us the fact, website again. We want people to go to that. We're going to, by the way, we're going to play a bit of, of that song, uh, Working Together, you know, when our interview is over, so the people listening oh, to beautiful. our podcast. Okay, yeah. The, uh, the website is music, M-U-S-I-C, yep. the number two, L-I-F-E, Dot org music to life dot org perfect and also there's the Rubicon theater r u b i c o n theater dot uh, uh, org who is presenting a week's worth of realization of what music can do to move us towards a more genuine compatible uh, equitable society and well that is we want to join up. I mean, honestly. <laughs> no, we, we really, All right. Yeah. My, raise, your right, raise your right hand, Jerry. Uh, <laughs> wait, is that, is that the one? Yeah, that's not the one on my that's wallet. What you got Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
raise your right, raise your right hand, and then put it over your heart, sweetheart, because that is where the calling is. It's a, good, it's a case of compassion and caring about America, about the future of America. Yeah, I have been lucky enough in life to talk to lots of, you know, well-known people just because of my job. But, you know, in terms of if, if I had my list of who I cared about, who I loved in terms of the entertainment world in, in my lifetime, you're there. I mean, you, you, you know, I'm not blowing smoke. There's nothing you can do for me. I'm just saying <laughs> you, you were religion to my friends and myself. So God uh, bless God you. Bless Thank you, you for being on. And we are, we are going to push it. Yeah. Give it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much. Hey, this is Gene. One last thing. I want to also hype a second song that you have done, which is a song called Impeachable. And we, we may play a little snip. <laughs> I think we're we going to play that. We're going to play a little snip of that, Maybe too, because that's wonderful. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, that's only a minute and a half long, Gene. So, yeah, you can go, you right. can go at it with Oh, that. yeah, that'll be cheaper for us. Right. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, Paul, thanks for taking your time to do this. Yeah. We really appreciate you it. Thanks, Paul. Right. Bye-bye. God All right. Thank you, man. Oh, Bye-bye. what a guy. What that a was guy. so cool. What a guy. You don't get, Jerry doesn't get like starstruck often. No, I, and you honestly, were, that yeah. is it. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, and, you know, I my sports heroes, but if sure. it was music, it was Peter, Paul, and Mary. It really was. Yeah. It was That's great. really neat. Uh, hey, I was hoping David, he can you play? in the wind with him. But well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Aw, buddy. I gave him every chance to do it. <laughs> me, 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 me. When I told Jerry that this was, uh, you know, lining up to happen, he said, uh, and he's very, you know, we're all very sad. Mary died 2009 of Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Peter and Paul do still perform mm-hmm. around the country. It's probably a limited schedule, but they're out there. They're going to get as close as Madison, Wisconsin, for example. And Jerry said to me, uh, if you're talking to his people, can you find out, you know, I- I'll audition. It could be Peter, Paul, and Jerry. No. And, <laughs> what? What? Oh, it'd be Peter, Paul, wow. and Jerry? The What's bad about that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think there's much good about it, Jerry, I gotta tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little scared. <laughs> you do the high okay. harmony of blowing in the wind? Yeah. No, 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 no. You can stop it now, though. Play a little bit of Working Together. Yeah, that's very clever. Working Together by Paul Stewart. The election is over some say what's done is done and of course that's easier to say if your side has won we've had our disagreements on that we can agree and when they say it's time to work together I can see how that's a good idea in principle But too much compromise Will make us all accomplices And that's when I realize I've got a few exceptions I should put them in a song It's a list of work togethers that I won't be working on I won't work together to dismantle health care 
together to lower the minimum wage. I won't work together to allow the weakening of gun control by the NRA. I can't work together to persecute the Muslims. Boy, that is so typical Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yeah, yeah. Reminiscent yeah. of some of the... Because oh, they did some clever... Uh, they did some sort of hardcore political songs uh, written by... Often written by Dylan, but not exclusively. And El Salvador, they... I can't remember who wrote that. But then they did some songs like I Love Rock and Roll Music. They had oh, some yeah, funny and that was Paul. songs. That was yeah, Paul because that's that, where yeah. he came from. And, and Puff the Magic Dragon, man, that song was smoking. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. Hey, but, but look, Quipster. It's better yeah, than the elevator comment. That's not a smart ass. That's a Quipster. That's a Quipster. Yeah, no. But they mixed in stuff like, you know, stew ball, and and then they'd slide in Where Have All the Flowers Gone, the peace song. Great mix of music. The wedding song that he wrote when he was out as a solo act after the group broke up after nine years. Then they came back together, performed for many years, uh, and then Mary died, and now Peter and Paul are out performing. I just want to say something. I'm going to work hard to see if there's some way Peter and Paul could come here. And I've already that told Liz so Sunday, his daughter, said, Liz, you got to see oh, this we place. Get him here. This is Greenwich Village. Yeah. You know, this is Just it. like it. You'd walk in here and go, damn, this place yeah. is cool. Let, so we're trying yeah, to Let's have him when he's in the area so the flight isn't so expensive. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Again, you learn to save a millionaire. Place. Yeah, <laughs> I'm down to one golf. You got one golf shirt. We got one golf stream. It's really a rough time for you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, one golf shirt, one <laughs> golf stream. Down to my final. Megan, <laughs> thank Megan. you. Megan, oh, hi, girl. That was good. Every now and again. Uh, that was a good one, though. That was Thanks, not buddy. pre-written. Hey, uh, Jerry. <laughs> yes. A segue from what uh, Noel Paul Stuckey was talking about all this political stuff and his focus now is on, he's staying right with it, he's on Trump. 100 days are just about up. What do you think we've, we're learning? What have we learned about Donald Trump in 100 days? That's the important question to ask. And I know you've been giving some thought to this. Yeah, I, well... We didn't know much about this guy before he became president. No, what I do think we know? after 100 days, which, you know, Hopefully, it'll be different after 200 or 1,000 days. Hopefully, it won't be 1,000 days. But anyway, uh, what we do know now that we almost all can agree on, even if you were a supporter, is he has no core beliefs beyond his own self-promotion. Notice he didn't come into office with, boy, this is my philosophy of life. This is my political, you know, here's where I am on the issues. He has no core beliefs. And uh, he's willing to change his views literally from day to day on major issues, whether it's on China, on whether Assad should stay in power. I mean, he literally goes one day he's this way and the next day he's the next. He's, he's on the other side. So he's willing to change his views on, on health insurance. That was the big thing he promised. And after three weeks, he obviously failed and then gave up. 
um, the Middle East, uh, will, willing to change positions, whether we should be involved or no, we shouldn't be involved. Whoops, I'm going to send over a few bombs. Um, it, it's unbelievable. Now, but however you choose to measure him, either by his own promises or by what's been good for the country, the standard you use, the first 100 days have been a failure. I know the one thing he got, the one thing that happened, which was consistent with a promise, was they got the Supreme Court appointment. But let's be honest, he had nothing to do with that. The list of the conservative justices to be was handed to him, and it was McConnell in the Senate that broke the filibuster rules and put it through. So he had nothing to do with that. He didn't convince, he didn't change one person's mind in the Senate on the confirmation process. So the thing which they're taking victory for had nothing to do with him. It had to do with the fact that you had a Republican Senate. So basically, nothing that he had promised or wanted to do was he able to accomplish. Now, his incompetence has pluses and minuses. The plus of his being so incompetent is that he couldn't get through most of the bad stuff he wanted to do. So there's a part of me that says, thank God he doesn't know what he's doing. Because he wasn't able to, you know, get the immigration ban. The courts stopped that because he didn't understand anything about the Constitution. He wasn't able to get through, you know, repeal and replace uh, on the health insurance, on, a, on the Affordable Care Act. His total incompetence, thank God for that. So, they, you know, we didn't get 24 million people uh, ready to lose their health insurance. He's not going to be able to get through his, his tax bill, which would give people like me great tax breaks and screw everybody else. Um, and uh, he certainly won't be able to do it now, of course, because he refuses to show his uh, tax returns. And politically, there's no way he can convince politicians to vote for a change in the tax bill when he's not willing to show his own tax returns because no one's ever going to know and politicians will then have to spend the whole campaign defending whether or not these tax issues are being put through because they benefit him rather than the country. So basically he's failed on that as well. He obviously failed on his promise that the Mexicans would pay for a wall. Uh, Mexico is not going to pay for the wall. And uh, the wall is just the stupidest idea of all, as if that's going to stop. You know, can a wall stop the internet? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, you know, a third grader might come up with such a stupid suggestion. I mean, even if you wanted to keep everybody out, what, a wall in today's age? Okay, so he's, he's, he's stupid. All right. So now, so the good news is that he isn't able to get through the bad things he wanted to do. That's the good news. The bad news is, of course, one, he's destroyed the image of America in the world. I'm not saying it can't ever return, but it certainly can't return as long as he's president. Uh, the credibility we have in the world is gone. You know, it's, it's now the rest of the world thinks he's a little bit of a crazy man. It doesn't mean that they will disagree with everything he does. It's they won't be able to know for sure. They can't trust that he won't change his mind the next day. They can't trust that he won't suddenly start sending missiles over and blowing up a country. And think about it. When you watch these cable stations, even the conservative ones, every pundit, every pundit, even those that support Trump, inevitably say, the good thing they say is, well, he's got some grown-ups around him that'll rein him in. 
I mean, if that's the best thing you can say about your leader, do you think everybody said, well, at least Lincoln has some good people around him to, you know, you know, at least Roosevelt had some good people. At least George Washington had someone around him that could keep George Washington on the straight and narrow, you know. It's, it's absurd. We're all admitting that he can't do it, that he's not up to the job, even people that like him, because the most powerful force in politics is resentment. And Trump got elected on resentment. There were constituencies that just resented the fact that much of America was looking down on, quote, them, and they weren't used to it, and they didn't like it, and they reacted. I mean, I really do think this elite versus non-powerful people that became the balance. I mean, even though Hillary won the popular vote by three million votes, it wouldn't even have been close in Wisconsin and Michigan. It's that resentment vote. It wasn't coal. Most Americans don't mine coal, okay? So it wasn't about coal. In one community, it could have been around about coal, but not over the whole country, not over the whole state. It wasn't about that. It's this, I did this resentment of, you know, even on the late night talk shows, everyone's kind of making fun of these people, you know? And it's, it's honestly, it happens here in the, we're doing this podcast in the tri-state, but it's kind of the discriminatory attitude that people have. They're from Ohio. Well, you know those Kentuckians. You know, it's, it's kind of this stuff goes on. We, people have to catch themselves. It's very easy to be a, a cultural snob, very easy to fall into that trap. It starts out as humor, as a joke, and then after a while it becomes an attitude that you're comfortable with. And I think the people, a lot of people just reacted to that. They're ticked off about it. So they don't care that he doesn't have any answers. They don't care. They love the fact that he's giving the finger to the, what he thought, they thought he was giving the finger to the establishment. But they didn't know that they were being conned, that he has now brought in everybody in the establishment that he was railing against. Because he's just this twittering blowhard, <laughs> Yeah, but I, I want to, you know, I don't want to be insulting. Um, <laughs> this, here's what the, we've seen an example of how this can be dangerous. And not just, you know, let's attack him, et cetera. It, it's really dangerous. And the, the best example, and it changes every day, so by the time people hear this, there may be a new issue. But the one that really struck me was Syria on many levels. Let's review this. Donald Trump views these pictures, which we all saw, of the babies being burned to death by these chemicals, by Assad. Horrifying. No one could look at those pictures and not want to throw up. Just horrifying. Despicable. And Trump had that reaction. At least that's what he said his reaction was. And I think 99.9% .9 of America said, wow, yeah. It almost was the first time we saw him being sensitive. And I was saying, oh, good. Something's breaking through that isn't about him. And yeah, this was horrifying. And then think of everything that happened right after. First, the next morning you get up and say, he was horrified in looking at those pictures. Did he not know? that this has been going on for several years? 
that half a million people have been killed and slaughtered like this, that chemical weapons have been used, that the people are trying to get out? How can he not know that this was happening, that now suddenly he's upset? And a day before saying Assad, you know, will stay, now all of a sudden this is horrible. So first you realize how little information does the man have? And then you wonder about the sincerity. Yes, he sent over 59 missiles, which raises another question. 59 missiles, and we couldn't even take out the runway? 59 missiles, we didn't destroy the airport, and we didn't get the chemical weapons. What were we shooting them at? So, you know, if this was, this is Trump being tough, Next time, aim for the runway. <laughs> what, what was your point? And now comes the morally the worst issue. If you were so ticked off by looking at those pictures and how horrible this burning of the babies was and is, and we all agree with it, then how dare you the next day said, oh, and by the way, I know you guys are getting horrible things done to you, but we're not letting you in our country. He's banning the same people that are being burned to death by these chemicals. What the hell is wrong with you? Don't go on television with your fake tears and say, this is horrible, this is the worst thing ever to humanity, and then you don't give a damn about these people to let them try and escape. They're trying to escape. They're being slaughtered. Either let's have a massive help to the refugees wherever they go to help feed them, to get them the medicine, to set up the camps, wherever that is, outside of Syria. We've got the resources. We could really help. And secondly... Get rid of the damn ban. There hasn't been one Syrian refugee that has ever killed an American in a terrorist act. Not one. And you ban the whole country? You ban all Syrian refugees in six other countries? Why isn't he being challenged on this? All this great drama. It's really all about television. He wants to look good. He wants to look like he's the strong guy. And he doesn't do what's really effective. And even when he wants to be strong, he misses the damn runway. <laughs> this is buffoonery. And finally on that, which goes to the whole issue of the incompetence. We have no policy. How can you just, this is the danger of a finger on the button. You can sit there and have dinner at the Margo, Lago, whatever it's called, country club, and you can sit there and while you're having dinner say, yep, let them go, 59 missiles. And you have no policy. Who answered the question, if you're going to overthrow Assad, who's going to take his place? Are you willing to send American troops to be there, to die there? those that live to stay there, because we're going to have to take over the country if we're just going to topple him. Who do you have to replace? What structure do you have in place? 
to turn on the electricity, to turn on the water. We went through that in Iraq. And wait a second, isn't he fighting ISIS? We want to declare, you know, ISIS is our number one enemy. So when we get rid of Assad, what do we do about ISIS? And how are we going to get the other Muslim countries to help us, which is our only chance of having any positive effect in the Middle East? Our only chance is to have the Muslim countries and soldiers that are fighting alongside us. How are we going to get them to do that if we tell them, oh, by the way, you're not welcome in our country, you're Muslim. Insult the entire Muslim world so that they won't help us, and then it's America alone. Every once in a while, we'll send over 59 missiles. It is just so elementary. And we let these people get into the White House and run our government? There's no policy. We can't even argue if it's a good policy or if it's a bad policy. They have no policy, just like they had no policy on health care. No replacement plan. Does anybody think, why do you run for political office if you don't have an idea of what you want to do? It's outrageous. It's outrageous. This incompetence is not a matter of, oh, we can say something funny and bad about Trump. It's who the hell is in charge in our country. Who the hell is in charge? We're going to ask... I want to sing Blowing in the Wind. Nope. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) We might get that in here. We got got enough of that. We're good. (laughs) Um, We've heard you sing that before. (laughs) We're going to ask Daryl Sean to come forward. And Daryl is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Let's give him a welcome. Dealer country. I know. And, <laughs> we'll forgive him. You got five minutes and you got to get out. Yeah. <laughs> Sing your song and be along there, sir. <laughs> Daryl is a supreme guitarist, an instrumentalist. Uh, no so he's, he makes his music with his guitar. It's pretty amazing. It's in the, what, what I guess I would call the Tommy Emanuel uh, vein. And uh, does his own original instrumental arrangements and writes his own material. And we'd love you to do a song for us. Yes, indeed. All right. right, The song is called So Absolutely So. It was written for a wedding.
wedding. Oh, bro. Wow. That must have been a very, very happy wedding. Oh, it was, was a very so happy cool. wedding. It was a perfect match. Oh, I love that. I want to ask Maria Corelli to come forward, too, <laughs> because she's going to help take us out along with uh, Daryl Sean with uh, Down by the Riverside. And while she's coming forward, I wanted to ask Isn't you this. Daryl, you'd swear, listening to you, I think everybody's going to agree, we think there's a drummer yeah. working with you. It sounds like multiple, yeah. yeah. He, he, you know, my, my first instrument was actually the drum set. And I think... And then I switched to guitar at when I was 16. And I think I still miss that, that rhythmic element. I think I always want to try to get that across if I can. Uh, how do you do that sound? I have to see your I mean, nails. Are you slapping the guitar or slapping the strings? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I have different effects. I mean, I do that, which is the back of my hand. I do this, which is a bass drum. It's a snare drum, uh, various other effects. It's uh, amazing. That kind of thing, like that. Um, it, yeah, I have these big fake nails. You yeah. can see it out there in radio land, Usually podcast Usually they have, land, like, pickers but, on the end. You actually just have... Like acrylic nails on? Yeah, acrylic nails. Yeah. So really it, it, it's, it's like five picks. His nails are better than yes. mine. This is not good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Son of a gun. I gotta so get you're, gun. you're not wearing finger picks. You had, that's acrylic. Yeah, they're acrylic nails. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Tell me. cool. Yeah, I used to bite my nails, but I got tired of taking yeah. my shoes off. Yeah. Oh. Uh, <laughs> no, well, that's so disgusting. I stopped. I stopped. Okay, I stopped. yeah. Last you know, when you were playing, this is, this is how weird I am. But honestly, while you were playing, evolution came to mind. Mm. In, in other words, how advanced, you know, the first human being, how did we get from walking around a hand <laughs> to someone that could manipulate, an instrument. Be, manipulate yeah. an instrument that way, make that kind of sound? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's no way I could do that. No. I'm, I'm evolutionary <laughs> way back. It's okay, Jerry. Yeah. Okay, hey, where can people hear your music? Uh, DarylShawn.com. It's D-A-R-Y-L-S-H-A-W-N. Perfect. Com. Perfect. Well, thanks very yeah. much for stopping yeah. all the way. Thank you so much, guys. As he's uh, touring yeah, around the country yeah. performing. Mm -hmm. Let's hear from Maria Corelli. Woo! Yes. <laughs> Based out of the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow and Based a down. folk singer in her own right. Uh, take us out, please, on Down by the Riverside. Jerry Springer will jump in on the second verse. This will show you evolution. <laughs> <laughs> Check out our website at jerryspringer.com. 